for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. Picture the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas, steep tree-blanketed peaks, tumbling waterfalls, lazy rivers, and caves, lots and lots of caves, formed eons ago by coursing water. Those caves serve many purposes. First as places to find refuge from enemies, from the heat. Later as places to commune with nature. Later still, in the early to mid-20th century, and I'm not making this up, Caves hosted underground supper clubs, subterranean nightclubs, where the food of choice was chop suey, that Chinese-American standard. Now, this is more than a mere story of culinary oddity. This dish reveals American policy and palate. It showcases our ideas about ethnicity and identity. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. This week, Robin Miniter chases through northwest Arkansas to track down the backstory on these unlikely historic entertainment destinations and their signature dish. It's 1930 in Bella Vista, Arkansas. America is in the throes of the Great Depression, and the worst drought in recorded history grips the heartland. And due to restrictive laws, immigration is on the decline— Jim Crow defines public spaces in the South, and prohibition is in effect. But here... 82 feet beneath the Ozarks, it's opening night at the Wonderland Cave nightclub. There's a flask tucked in every fur coat, and hundreds of slick leather soles slide across the buffed wooden dance floor. Protozoic-era stalactates hang low, and ladies in chiffon dip lower. From the ceilings hang silks and glowing orbs that seem to levitate, and over there is the orchestra pit. Watch how the light dances off the mirror behind that marble bar, and watch those bartenders sling frosted grape juices and tonics. The decor is sumptuous. Exotic, one may say. Chinese lanterns hang from the ceiling. The Wonderland Cave proves to be a reprieve from the outside world. With its long, dark passageways, it feels worlds away from sleepy Bella Vista outside. Now, caves aren't hard to come by along the Arkansas-Missouri line, but this one is different. If you give a person a dance floor, they're going to want a beverage to go with it. And if you give a dancer a beverage, or maybe they've brought their own, they're probably going to want a snack, too. And if you found yourself dancing in Wonderland nightclub in 1930, you'd most likely be slurping down a big bowl of chop suey. Chop suey in a cave in northwest Arkansas? Indeed. Today, Bella Vista is a bedroom community for the nearby Walmart headquarters. Though the nightclub is long gone, it begs the question, 
how did Chinese food end up on a menu in a nightclub in an Arkansan cave that is hundreds of millions of years old? And whose idea was this? And who were the chefs in the kitchen? You see, it's a little bit complicated. I'm with Zita Lucas and Jill Werner, the president and vice president of the Bella Vista Historical Society. We're in the Society's museum, which is housed in a cream-colored ranch-style building with dark green shutters that sits along the highway. They are the keepers of the archive, and you could also say that they are amateur detectives. We're sitting at a wooden table tucked behind a main gallery, flanked by bookshelves on all sides. Here, we have a copy of the cave's menu and all of its celery heart and club sandwich and chop suey glory. Zita opens a black binder stuffed with newspaper articles and photos and letters. Let's see, this is dated. And she finally settles on a page. Uh, June 6, 1930, the Bella Vista Breezes, the official newspaper of Bella Vista. It has an article head, uh, with the headline, Official Family of the Resort. Uh, below, we published a complete list of the official family of Bella Vista for the 1930 season. Again, 1930 is when they opened the cave. And the next paragraph is headed, Colored Employees. And under the Colored Employee heading, it says, Homer Robinson Chef, Shad Samuels Assistant Chef, Fanny Robinson Pastry, 10 colored employees, including waiters, maids, and porters. So you have... A black chef creating an Asian cuisine, a fake Asian cuisine for white people. So to understand the performance, you have to understand the theater. The cave that housed the Wonderland nightclub sat on a property owned by the three Linebarger brothers, FW, CC, and CA, real estate tycoons, a lot of them, who in 1917 opened a summer resort that catered to money mobile Southerners. They deployed traveling salesmen across the South to find prospective buyers for their Bella Vista real estate venture. They marketed their farmland turned resort town as the gem of the Ozarks. And there is something a little P.T. Barnum about C.A., the youngest. My name is Carol. It's now Harter. My maiden name was Linebarger. Meet Carol, C.A.'s eldest granddaughter. What he did was lied a lot, <laughs> or embellished, I should say, maybe. C.A. was um, a man who struck a pose on a regular basis. Every picture that we have, he is standing someplace and he is pointing and he's got one hand on one hip and the other arm out there, and he's got a single digit pointing straight ahead. And he's pointing, and you can imagine that he's saying, and over here we're going to build such and such. Granddaddy always liked to be the, the person, the center of anything. Now chalk it up to little brother syndrome or otherwise. He did know how to put on a show and how to make a buck. The youngest Linebarger brother was astute at reading the social and political landscape. America began to quickly industrialize on the heels of World War I, and there had never been so much money in so many hands. C.A. saw his countrymen seeking novelty and leisure, and this was something he wanted to tap into. And he did. But then something happened. The tremendous crowds which you see gathered outside the stock exchange are due to the greatest crash in the history of the New York Stock Exchange in market. National panic ensued. 
CA responded to his vacationer's anxiety of an unsure time with an idea. He had seen this thing in Paris once. It was a subterranean nightclub called Le Petit Caveau, or the Little Vault, or even more roughly translated to the Little Cave. And like many folks on the Ozark Plateau, C.A. did have a cave in his possession, and he was going to make good with it. He had an idea that would keep his vacationers coming and give them something they had never experienced before. Something to talk about. He devised an escape. And in devising an escape, he designed a fantasy. When we return, Robin digs into the how, the why, and the who of Chop Suey. But first, there's that donor music. Simmons Catfish calls the Mississippi Delta home. I'm Harry Simmons, and I've been farming catfish since 1976. Get him talking catfish, and he'll speak of the quality of what his family raises and the loyalty of customers. But what he really gets excited about is the opportunity his company offers his community. Most of my management, upper management, and people working at this plant, I went to high school with. So we all like this community. We like Yazoo County and Humphreys County, Yazoo City and Belzona and Louise. We're the largest employer in Yazoo County. That's what I'm proud of, that people that wanted to stay in this community could, where a lot of the communities in the Delta are struggling to keep their population. The next time you crave catfish, baked, fried, or in a stew, look for Simmons Farm-Raised Catfish, a driver of the Delta economy. A list of vendors is online at simmonscatfish.com. For their commitment to quality catfish, their belief in the Delta, and their support of this podcast, we thank them. So before we get carried away with the pageantry of CA's Wonderland Cave, we still need to figure out how exactly Chop Suey made its way to this cave in Arkansas. I got the chief Chop Suey scholar on the phone. Food historian Andrew Coe wrote the book on this topic. It's called Chop Suey, A Cultural History of Chinese Food in the United States. During the 19th century, in the 1870s and 1880s, um, Westerners, non-Chinese, discovered chop suey in the Chinatowns of, um, of the United States, and particularly in the Chinatown of New York City. But Westerners had Western tastes. Um, so the Chinese restaurateurs adapted chop suey to our tastes. Around the time Wonderland Cave opened for business, the white American imagination was having an affair with the idea of the Far East. At the time, this part of the world represented the idea of the exotic. It was quite literally, well, forbidden. The Immigration Act of 1924 excluded all classes of Chinese immigrants and extended restrictions to other Asian immigrant groups. Chinese immigrants were barred from most industries, aside from the laundry and restaurant businesses. And due to surging anti-Chinese sentiments, many landlords would not rent or sell property to them. They became concentrated in certain neighborhoods, and these became the Chinatowns that we know of today. It didn't take long for upper-crust Bohemian New Yorkers to begin to venture down to Chinatown. It was a form of voyeuristic and gustatory tourism, even. And as Chinese restaurateurs got hip to their visitors' tastes, 
they began muting their strong traditional spices and substituting ingredients for local ones. Thus, chop suey was born. And that became like um, the hottest dish um, in, um, uh, in, in the United States. Chop suey restaurants spread all over the United States, um, including to many of the cities and towns um, across the South. The dish was, and still is, typically made up of celery and onions and mushrooms and water chestnuts, perhaps some pork, maybe some chicken, a little bit of soy sauce, bean sprouts, all served in a viscous sauce over rice. Chop suey came along at a time when Americans were looking outward, regardless of hostility felt for their new neighbors at home. And when prohibition took hold, the established chop suey joints fare far better than a lot of the other eateries. Because the interesting thing about chop suey restaurants is that they didn't serve alcohol. And so when prohibition hit, a lot of restaurants had to close down because they couldn't serve, you know, wine and booze anymore. So they couldn't, you know, afford to stay open. But chop suey restaurants um, had never done so, and so they could stay open. In the kitchen, Chinese um, chefs preparing chop suey, chow mein, and mugugai pan, and all the, all the, the uh, you know, dishes like that. So this was a natural thing for a um, nightclub owner in, um, in Arkansas who really wanted to you know, give people like the cutting edge of what people were doing in New York. The dish on the cave's menu was late-night food for a late-night crowd. It was a stick-to-your-ribs type of meal that was perfect for an evening of carousing. And in designing America's largest underground nightclub, it's possible that the owners of the Wonderland Cave took their culinary cues not from China, but from the cosmopolitan American cities with Chinatowns. These chop suey joints provided a space of inclusivity, and it was here that Chinese, white, and black diners could sit side by side. And, and at least in, in, in the Northeast, um, um, Chinese restaurants willingly and, and gladly uh, serve blacks as well as whites. And um, so it became known as a kind of place where, um, you know, the, the old barrier, the, the normal barriers in life um, did not apply. The other theory about how the subterranean chop suey came to be was that it was the employees of the cave who brought their cosmopolitan experiences with them, not the linebargers. Now, I know from reading the letters... Here's Carol again. ...that they hire a crew of people that are from the train service, the Pullman service. The Pullman car company was at the heart of the country's railroad boom in the late 19th century. And shortly after the Civil War, George Pullman introduced the train sleeper cars to American railways, a kind of hotel on wheels. To a freedman living under Jim Crow, the Pullman car service provided an avenue to a new life. Pullman hired African-Americans to staff his cars as porters, waiters, and as cooks. My name is Jennifer Jensen Wallach. I'm an associate professor of history at the University of North Texas, where I teach African-American history and food history. I called up Jennifer for a bit of insight on the power dynamics that shaped the space and possibly shaped this menu. We, it's interesting because clearly this particular space, the cave, sounds like it's designed for white people to enjoy and again be on the top of this hierarchy. But Pullman Porters 
um, had likely a lot of them been to these actually more inclusive, rather chop suey joints, right? So, you know, some of them had been to New York City or been to Chinatown, San Francisco, and they'd probably eaten at chop suey places. George had built the town of Pullman, Illinois, within the city limits of Chicago to function as a workers' utopia after Reconstruction. With ample housing, a school, and a church in place, he hoped to attract able-bodied workers. The trains were an integral ferry of the Great Migration, bringing thousands of African Americans north. Many people credit Pullman porters as significant contributors to the development of America's black middle class. And that growth was reflected on plate and palate. I mean, one thing that's interesting to me, too, thinking about African-Americans relating to sort of Chinese food or thinking about, you know, their their experience serving it or consuming it, is that there was a lot of pressure um, felt by some middle class African-Americans in particular to use foodways as a way to disassociate themselves from slavery from their plantation origins, from poverty, as a way to show that they are modern, sophisticated citizens and not, you know, others. So Chinese food is actually a way to kind of do that because it's vogue, right? It's definitely not linked to the plantation past. So it's a way to perform an experiment with a new sort of modern um, racial identity Wonderland Cave, then, was both a visual spectacle and a social performance. With its dishes and its painted lanterns, it sated white America's desire to touch and taste what was considered exotic. It was a fearless, fantastical space for these visitors, and it was a sanitized vision of a place. They didn't have to go to China when CA could bring the idea of China to them. And in cooking chop suey for these white dancers and diners, the black cooks and servers gestured to the idea of inclusivity and sophisticated knowledge of the country, even if the space remained racially stratified. C.A. Leinbarger sold his Wonderland Cave in 1952. We know from his private letters and receipts and newspaper articles that the resort was failing. The allure of Wonderland had faded. With the American economic boom in the wake of World War II, cars got bigger and shinier and better, and interstates went further and crisscrossed in ways never seen before. Passenger jets brought travelers to places that they had only dreamt about, and you could now buy chop suey in cans. After changing hands a few times and never quite successfully relaunching, the cave was sealed. In 1996, it was closed for good. Or at least... For now. Today, Northwest Arkansas is the destination that the Leinbarger brothers hoped it would be. Every year, thousands of folks enjoy the bluffs of the Ozarks and tubing down the Buffalo River. In ways, the Wonderland Cave was a product of its time. This menu tells a larger story, one in which Chinese influence, the white imagination, and African-American labor all converge over a plate of rice. That was the thing that I noticed when I first came here. I'm with Jill again. Was how loud the bird songs were as you drove around. Just After our day together in the archive, we hop in the car and head over to the cave. We walk through the rubble and into what's left of the stone structure that had housed Wonderland Cave's ticket counter, coat rack, and restroom. On the ground in front of us is a steel plate about 10 feet long and 5 feet wide that's bolted to the ground. 
it covers the stairs leading to the unfurling passageway that opens to Wonderland's cavern. In ways, the quiet air, the crumbled stone, and the overgrown briars reminds me of a graveyard. Robin Miniter reported and produced this episode. She's a freelance radio producer and oral historian. You may also remember Robin as Gravy's longtime intern. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick, and our donor music is by Jazar. Managing editor for this podcast and all other SFA content is Sarah Camp Milam. Please join me as SFA welcomes our new Gravy intern, Monique Laborde. Find photos, a list of episode music, and resources for further reading at our website, that's southernfoodways.org. Two more things to know. Gravy is taking a holiday. We'll be back on May 17 to explore the Somali International Mall in Louisville, Kentucky. From playing dominoes to watching soccer to catching up on community news, the International Mall serves as a social hub for Louisville's growing Somali population. Until May, please remember, make cornbread not war.